Cinema Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Flagstaff, Arizona, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, bacteria and tinnitus. In addition, we're joined by Professor Franz Duval, who will talk about the biology of empathy. So, stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up. Here on the Grok Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty fulfilled, I guess. It's the end of the year, and it's the best time to be fulfilled. Yeah, I'm going to see two digits changing this time. It's like when the odometer on your car rolls over from 9999 to 1000. What, another 1990 years till you get all four digits to roll over, right? That's right, and then I think the, uh, the planet is going to need an oil change at that point. Yeah. Anyways, how was your Christmas? Oh, it was really good here in Flagstaff and hanging out with the folks, cool stuff, exchanging presents. How about yours? Oh, well, actually in Japan, Christmas is not a holiday. Yeah, it was a full day of work, and then the following weekday we also had to work too. Um, New Year's is pretty big. What was the coolest thing in science this year so far? <laughs> so many cool things about science. I think the coolest thing about science was that science is continuing to go on. It doesn't care what people do, right? It just is. Whoa, that's kind of zen. Well, I've always thought that Zen and science should merge. Yeah, isn't that like Grox or something? <laughs> Have you heard of it? heard that there's a really awesome show called that, but I've, I've never listened to it. I gotta check it out one of these days. I'm kind of annoyed by the hosts. Hey, at least he tells the truth. He never lies. Except this statement, which is false. So I have one story which could be a cure to my ills these days. I wonder if there's one panacea for them all. Uh, well, that would be death, but I'm <laughs> trying to delay that one for a while. It looks like some scientists have found a way to cure tinnitus, the so-called ear ringing. So apparently it affects about 1-3% to of the population, and it could be a significant decline in their quality of life. So some scientists have developed a musical treatment to help them decrease the loudness of these ringing. Okay, playing a certain type of music. Okay, so it's actually quite clever or and very simple. Basically, they choose songs in which they strip out the frequencies that match the tinnitus frequency. And as you train them, it helps these patients become desensitized to these ringing. Apparently, tinnitus occurs because of some flaw in the auditory cortex. And retraining, it can help to bring it back to normalization or some acceptable level of processing by the brain. Simple type of cure for tinnitus, you just play some music and retrain the brain. Yes, so like with anything else you learn. <laughs> Well, cool. If I have a choice, then I will choose Lady Gaga. Excellent choice. This was actually carried out by some researchers in Germany and published in our very, very, very favorite journal. Do we do we have a very favorite journal? Oh, it's the I... one and only. <laughs> it is, of it's course. Proceedings. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. PNAS. Yes. Aren't you glad it's not called the Transactions of the National Academies <laughs> of Science? Or Journal? <laughs> You know, my, my respect for that journal has grown so much in this last year. Well, it's also helped your ego, I think. <laughs> <laughs> my only wish in life was to have been published in our very favorite journal. And of course, the Proceedings <laughs> of the National Academy of Sciences. And I have to thank them for that honor. <laughs> wow, you are truly awesome, Charles. <laughs> <What's>... Indeed. 
And so finally for the uh, new year, you probably want to make sure that you take care of your teeth. Oh yeah, and flossing, I guess. So researchers now have uh, sequenced the genome of a very specific type of cavity-causing bacterium known as Bifidobacterium dentium. And uh, this poses like, some very interesting uh, information for researchers now who want to fight cavities because now they know how this particular bacterium works. I was hoping they would have that the stem cell grown teeth right in the next couple of years so I can replace and reshape my teeth perfectly into my mouth. I'd rather they just have the stem cell grown stomach that pre-digests my food. Oh. This is very fascinating research and work done by Marco Ventura, a microbiologist at the University of Parma in Italy, promised now that they have the genome of this bacteria that they can go about fighting its tooth decaying abilities. Wow, fighting tooth and nail. Just like nature. And that was published in a recent edition of PLOS Genetics. Oh wow, that's my second favorite journal this week. PLOS regularly. PLOS often. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Franz Duval will join us to talk about the biology of empathy. back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, one invokes the idea of empathy. It often seems contrary to the Darwinian picture of nature, that of survival of the fittest. But is it possible that our biology supports our empathetic reactions, and is there evidence for this in other species as well? Well, joining us to discuss this issue is Professor Franz Duvall. Professor Duvall is the Charles Howard Chandler Professor of Primate Biology at Emory University. He is also the director of the Living Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including Chimpanzee Politics and Our Inner Ape, his latest release, The Age of Empathy, Nature's Lessons for a Kinder Society, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Professor Duvall, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, we had you on the program a little while ago for your book, Our Inner Ape. Are there lessons to be drawn from studying other species like uh, the bonobos in terms of understanding human behavior? Yeah, I, th I think humans are primates, and, and so we descend from an ape-like ancestor. Actually, uh, just recently we have heard about Ardi, the Ardipithecus, which is getting very close to that point of the common ancestor between human and apes. And we don't know what kind of uh, ape that was. It was probably not an existing ape. Uh, the bonobo may be a model, or the chimpanzee may be a model. And um, by studying bonobos and chimpanzees, we get some inkling of what, what kind of behavior that ape showed uh, that is our ancestor. Mm. And why is empathy especially important for our survival as a species? Empathy, I think, goes back to maternal care, where a female needs to react to the distress of her offspring when they're cold or hungry or in danger and that's also probably why empathy is more developed in females than males so the, in, in mammals it's a it's an obligatory it's found in all the mammals and from there it got expanded to other uses not just in maternal care but also uh, in other social relationships 
what are the uh, particular benefits then for having such behaviors in, among uh, species? Empathy is a very good mediator of helping behavior. And that's of course how in humans, um, big hypothesis about altruism is that uh, empathy mediates it. And I think the same is true for many animals, is that, uh, of course, not, not necessarily, let's say, the, the altruistic behavior of ants and bees. I don't think there's an, an empathy component to it. But uh, in mammals, for sure, uh, empathy is a big part of how you respond to the distress of others or the needs of others. And this is true for not just for humans, but also for many other animals. Hmm. Uh, there's, there are studies on rodents now. There are several studies on empathy in mice, believe it or not. And, uh, of course, in dogs it occurs, and everyone knows that the reason actually why people have uh, dogs and cats at home instead of iguanas and uh, turtles is exactly because we like the emotional component, that we, we, we feel the emotional connection with these animals. These animals respond to our emotions, we respond to their emotions, and we don't have that kind of contact with a reptile. And so basically all the mammals, um, for example, the mouse study is interesting, because in mice they found that um, mice are more pain sensitive if they have seen a companion in pain before. And so they are uh, primed for pain responses when they've seen others in pain. And so even rodents have this kind of mechanism, very basic mechanism of uh, emotional contagion. Even in rodents, and I think all the mammals, you're gonna find something. Hmm. Why do you think uh, this idea that uh, nature is red tooth and claw or dog eat dog persists? First of all, there is an um, ideological component, so there are people with certain political inclinations who like to depict nature as a doggy dog place and then project that view on their society, and because that's, they like to structure their society along the lines of competition. And of course, what has happened in the last year is the economy has put a bit of a damper on this view that competition is good for society because we've seen what it has done to us. Um, but so there's, so there's a certain political group who likes to depict nature that way because it suits their ideological ends. And on the other hand, I think for a long time, and, and this has nothing to do really with politics, is that there has been an underestimation by, by people. People have underestimated what animals are like, and, and they like to depict animals as aggressive and competitive, and they have totally forgotten that there are lots of animals like elephants and dolphins and and primates, and the primates are where we come from, uh, which are very cooperative, and so they need mechanisms to help each other, they need ways of to cooperate, because otherwise they cannot even survive. Uh, so is there an appreciation for this biological empathy now? If you take a different view of nature, if you take a view of nature as a, as a place where there's both competitive tendencies and there are highly cooperative tendencies and social tendencies, and some species combine both of them, strangely enough. For example, chimpanzees are like that. They're, they can be very violent and competitive one moment, and the next moment they're cooperating. And humans are like that. Humans have both tendencies in sort of in a combination. So that means, I think it has implications for how you structure your society. So in, instead of structuring society based on, let's say, the principle of greed and selfishness and open competition, and that's all you can think of, you do need to take into account that humans are actually quite cooperative animals. And so, for example, I've, I've heard that at some universities, for example, students are pitted against each other. So the, the university says, well, only 10% of the students will get this far, meaning that you create enormous amount of competition among the students. And once you do that, you, they become more competitive and, and they, they become doggy dog, basically, because you have set them up this way. But actually, 
if you would set up things differently, you might actually create cooperative students and, and get students to cooperate and exchange ideas, which is maybe what you'd rather have. So the way you set up your schemes for society actually affect how people respond and how people react. And you may get these cooperative or empathic responses out of them if you provide the right structure to them. Hmm. So as a European living in the U.S., do you find uh, that there's a, a difference I pose to that in Europe? Yeah, I think there's a big difference is that um, solidarity is a big difference, and that's why in my book I, I emphasize how many animal societies are based on solidarity. And in Europe, for example, healthcare and education are considered basic rights, basically. No, no one would question. If, if you Sometimes in the U.S. I hear someone say, well, why would I pay for the education of somebody else? Or why would I pay for the health care of somebody else? That's a question that is just inconceivable in Europe. In Europe, that's a logical thing is that you're all in this together and health care and education are two of these things. And the military would be another one. But, and in the U.S., of course, that's never questioned. It's never questioned that national security is a collective uh, interest. But for health care and education, that question sometimes is brought up. And, and it is a basic lack of solidarity in the society, which in a way, I, I'm not saying entirely negative, because individualism in this society and the freedom that it brings with it is, of course, also a very important positive component in the society. So I'm not saying that it's entirely negative, but for a European, it's definitely surprising to hear people question whether education should be for everyone uh, equally provided. Do you think more people than in the U.S. are starting to uh, appreciate the idea that an empathetic or altruistic philosophy is more inherent in our biology, our nature? Well, that's, of course, something that I would hope. And, and, and my book, uh, The Age of Empathy, tries to provide that argument is that uh, empathy and cooperation and, and fairness principles can be found in the primates, and so they are part of, of human nature as well. Uh, I'm not sure that that Americans as a whole are becoming more sensitive to a biological argument, but they are certainly becoming more sensitive to the political argument. And so you have now a new president who uses the word empathy left and right. So recently for the Supreme Court nominee and in, in the debate about healthcare, he uses the word empathy regularly and moral obligations and so on. And so I think the society is ready for a shift because the previous um, strategy of, of a purely competition-based society hasn't been extremely successful. We have seen that. And so um, people are open for a change, I think. And the biological argument, I think, is an added argument. So, so I'm basically arguing that this whole idea that nature is red and tooth and claw and that as a consequence society needs to be structured like that as well, that's a false argument because partly nature is not like that. And partly, if you look at our closest relatives, you see that we are not structured psychologically like that. And so we are, we are really built like cooperative primates, and we should exploit that fact. Hmm. What evidence is there that we are, in fact, built to be empathetic? In neuroscience, for, for human empathy, is very interesting evidence. Because, um, for example, a human in a brain scanner, and, and you let them see, or let's say on a TV screen, you let them see how you stick a needle to their best friend, for example, or their spouse, and the pain centers in their brain then lighten up as if they got the needle in themselves, but they're not getting it in themselves, they're just watching somebody else get it. And so that, that's very interesting uh, evidence that, that we are really in tune with others and that we feel the pain of others almost literally. And uh, in animal 
because that kind of experiment has not been done yet, but we know from animal studies that um, the same sort of distress to distress reaction, you see, you become distressed because you see somebody else distressed occur in primates. For example, uh, long ago, there's a, there's a monkey experiment that was done that we probably would not repeat nowadays, but uh, an experiment in which a monkey could get food by pulling at a lever, and each time he pulled at the lever, it, it would shock his neighbor. So the, the neighbor would get electrical shocks, and he could get food that way. Now, monkeys don't do that. So, so monkeys, they learn to pull the lever for food, but as soon as they notice that it uh, delivers pain to somebody else, they stop doing it, even if, if it provides them good food. And some monkeys even starve themselves for several days because they didn't want to do this kind of thing. So, so th there are experiments, and we do experiments not on pain like this, but we do experiments on the more positive side of, let's say, empathy. Uh, and so there are experiments now that indicate quite strongly that these tendencies exist. It, it is very fascinating. Uh, do you have some like, final words regarding the lessons that we really should be taking home from uh, viewing and what place empathy should play in our society? Yeah, the lesson that, that the selfish gene and by extension we are selfish and, and by extension society needs to be structured around the greed and selfishness, I think that whole message, insofar as it was based on an understanding of biology, is based on a wrong understanding. It, it is not in line with what we know about animal behavior and it's not in line with what we know actually about human behavior because there's increasing evidence for empathic tendencies in the human. And so um, we need to question that. And, and, and as I'm not a po politician, so I'm not going to go in too deeply into the political implications, but it is a, a sort of assumption that needs to be questioned. Uh, Professor Duvall, I do want to thank you very much. The new book is called The Age of Empathy, Nature's Lessons for a Kinder Society. I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Franz Duvall discussing the biology of empathy. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world I think to myself What a wonderful Okay, here we go. It's uh, time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic empathetic or callous. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were um, empathetic or callous if they were actually alive. Professor Duvall, are you ready to play the game? Sure. Okay, here we go. Item number one, if it were alive, would it be callous or empathetic, the iPod? Empathetic. 
it's in uh, responses. It's responsive to us. So it, it responds, well, it doesn't respond to my mood, but it certainly responds to my touch. So I, I consider it empathetic. Okay, very good. Item number two, an SUV. I think it's callous. It, it is obnoxious. It is a statement. It doesn't take the environment much into account. It doesn't take smaller users of the roads much into account. So I think it's callous. Okay. <laughs> Number three would be poker chips. Poker chips. Uh, poker chips are neutral for me. I don't see them as callous. I don't see them as um, empathetic for sure. They're related to uh, games that are quite selfish. So that would make them a bit callous maybe. Okay. Number four is a Christmas fruitcake. Christmas fruitcake, I think it's empathetic because if you ever do any bakery, and I do that regularly, making breads or making cakes, um, is, is usually a loving activity. It's a nurturing activity because you, you don't do it just for yourself. You do it for a group, and that's certainly the, the purpose of a Christmas cake. Okay. Finally, number five, it's Viagra. Well, uh, Professor Duvall, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, uh, playing our game, and again, of course, talking about your book, which is called The Age of Empathy, Nature's Lessons for a Kinder Society. Thank you very much for joining us today thank on the Grox. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the program, and joining us right now for this week's Question of the Week is Dr. Sean Connery. Dr. Connery, welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Sean Connery, dentist to the stars. Wow. So, my question this week is, what's cementum? Cementum is a very fascinating element. It occurs at the roots of us. Now, most people are not really well aware of that. To their gums, and then it grows. Um, cool. Cool to be with you. Watch your teeth and floss regularly. Hey, thanks a lot, Dr. Connery. <laughs> my pleasure, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, dude. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. We're also on Facebook. Have a happy new year and keep on grokking.
No, no, no. We have to nine thirty appointment. We have. So she's having somebody at ten o'clock. So we have to go now. <laughs> we can do this tomorrow, Charles. Hi, Mrs. Lee. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Turn up.